You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Life's better with American Family Insurance, because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to Tanya Edwards. We'll begin that in just a second. But first, I'd like to remind you that tickets are still available to come and see Ramesh Ranganathan in the last of this season's Soho Theatre Live podcasts on the 4th of April. Now, you can, you might be able to hear the Boutros. He's in my arms at the moment. He's slightly complaining about that. Uh, he doesn't want to come to the show because he's racist, apparently. Outrageous. Uh, so come along to that, SohoTheatre.com, 4th of April, to see Ramesh Ranganathan. Uh, get online and add the discount code FAF, F-A-F-F, in order to get 25% off tickets. Here is the fabulous, very funny, uh, deliciously dry, dry as sand. That's a phrase I bandy around a lot on the podcast, but she really is. Fabulous sense of humour, very funny lady. This is Tanya Edwards. Oh, what was that, Boutros? You hate women now as well? Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so we've just been having a really fascinating and in-depth chat about property. I know, it's exciting stuff. Which is something I, I haven't... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to... I always, at the beginning of these, I sort of try and start with what my... Um, uh, what my preconceptions of a person are, of an act. Like, we don't know each other that well. We no, had we an excitable chat in the Soho Theatre bar recently. Yes, very much in favour of London. If yes. If you ever moved to Bristol. As, and, and we, I haven't mentioned this just while we were chatting now, but a lot of my new stuff for next year's show at the moment, such as it is, is about the wrench of leaving London. And... Uh, I have to say, I, I feel disloyal to the truth of that material, but I'm kind of like, hey, it's, it's not so bad. Joe, you know, the idea that there might be a show in moving is the first positive thing you've said about <laughs> that. <laughs> but you were saying, and I, I hope, I mean, tell me we can take this out if this is too personal, but you were saying that when you got together with your partner, you recently married, one of your yeah. conditions was, I don't leave London. That's absolutely fundamental, yeah. And talk, talk to me about that. Does that have talk to me about the the, the ramifications for that uh, in in comedy terms, if there are any, or is it purely a lifestyle thing? Um, it's not to do with comedy. In so far as you mean, I would want to be here for gigs. Yeah. No, there's nothing to do with that. I just like London as a city, and it's very easy to get to other cities. Like I used to live in Paris, and actually I lived in New York. If I ever had loads of money and could just swing from place to place, it'd be a good base. That'd be so great. But if you can't leave because you can't go anywhere. It's a great place to be skint, London, I think. It's just a great place, full stop. And I don't really like leaving it in England. Um, 
obviously, unless I've got a really good gig and I love every... <laughs> I saw that happen. Shit, I, I saw love... that happen in your eyes. Oh, uh, fuck. The Northwest just heard me say yeah, that. I love every town I visit. I really do. But I, I like living here. And I think that um, lots of people want to move out, which is great. Good. Um, more room for me. But I... I um, And Sanjiv, my partner, he's not remotely interested in where he lives. He's lived in Edinburgh. He's from Belfast. And... You know, he likes peace and quiet and space, but and that those aren't my those aren't my things. How old were you when you were living in Paris? Uh, about twenty-two. Were you studying there? What? How come you were no, living in Paris? No, I, I went for a month and I just didn't come back for about a year and a half. In fact, I didn't come back. That's when I left uh, New York. I was having an existential crisis. Okay, I quite, went a, with a quite, a gl- quite a glamorous one. So, <laughs> an existential crisis between Paris and New York? Not really. I worked in a Tex-Mex. Um, it, was the, it was the only place you could get a job if your French wasn't good enough. And my French really wasn't good enough. I didn't understand it. I was, remember going around all these bars and um, looking for work. And I was in one bar and they said that they didn't have any work there. And the guy at the bar had to translate that into English because my French was so bad I didn't understand. I was being rejected. Um, so I got this job in a Tex-Mex because everyone was foreign. Um, all from the Bonnier. So I actually learned French really aggressive Bonnier French. So I'm okay. really posh in English and I was really common in French to the point where when I got a job in a smart place, they had to have a word with me and say, listen, in English, you're ever so polite. You know, because they'd say, do you want a cup of coffee? And I'd say, oh, no, thanks very much. But in, in, in French, I'd be like, oh, I don't give a fuck, mate. You know, get, <laughs> get out of my face. So I had to kind of relearn smarter, nicer, nicer French. And how, to, let's just take this back a couple of steps. Something you deal with, I've heard you deal with on stage in, this, in the way that some people have to kind of make a joke about their physical appearance to register that they know about it with the audience. I've heard you do jokes about your accent because you do sound pretty posh. You've got that joke about riding into Edinburgh on a pony. Yeah, I, I, um, I never used to ever make any reference to it. Um, and weirdly, I do much better in places which were much rougher. Because there I was already a joke. Yes. It, it was already obviously a joke. And weirdly, it was places where I couldn't tell the difference between me and anyone I'd met in those bars. Or And I'm very easygoing anyway. Like I, It's not that I'm going into a place and thinking, oh, I don't like this place. It's not smart enough. Or I'm doing comedy. I'm, I'm not a Michelin star critic. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's quite basic. But I found that in those places where I didn't think I was any different to anybody... It was really, it could affect my gigs. So, did you? Where, where does your posh voice come from? Does it come from? Do you re, do you recognise that it is a posh voice? Or, or I do when it... I listen to it, um, but I can't hear it myself. And I I think that you sound the same as me. Okay. Yeah. So I I can't really tell. And I um and also my brother doesn't sound like me. Do your parents? Do you sound like your parents? I sound like my mother. She okay. but she went to a grammar school. But but she when she grew up you. You learn to, to speak frightfully nicely. Is a grammar school a fee-paying one or a non? No, I it's the one where you have to be bright. Okay, right. Um, the ones that we're trying to close down. But um, yeah, so she, she, when she was growing up, you just tried to, you know, you spoke properly. You learned how to speak properly. Okay. So I was just. I've, I just, and also I've never been able to shake it off. I, I've got There's a, something I'm just listening in, in sort of in a depth now to your voice in, that I haven't previously. 
And um, it's not even necessarily the accent that sounds posh. It's that it's quite breathy. And there's something about, and I don't have the... As the, years of chain smoking. <laughs> well, there's that, I'm sure. But I don't quite have the terminology for it. I'm sure maybe someone could email and tell me exactly what the quality is that I mean. Tell me exactly what it is that's wrong with my voice and I can just fix it. And it's not at all. No, well, this is, I mean, for a comedian, it's brilliant to have a voice that doesn't sound like anyone else's. Do you think? I'm not sure. But the, it's, do you think? I'm not sure. It's 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 the it's the tentativeness of it. Especially I'm not really feeling very tentative. So no, I know. Well, you're so, not. Well, it's it's one of the many contradictions that is you. We'll get onto some others in a bit. So you're uh, so the, my my line of questioning was let's let's paint a picture of you as a younger person. This is pre comedy. You having an existential crisis, so you went to Paris. Is that is that true, or are you being glib? No, that is, that is true. I wanted to be an actor. I am. Um, Oh God, what was I doing? So I did a law degree, but I didn't really turn up. I didn't like the building. <laughs> and um, so I just would turn up for plays. And then after that, I um, I wanted to be an actress. And I don't know how I thought I was going to do that, really. Um, and I went to RADA and I did a master's there. Oh my God. But with King's College London. So um, it was like half academic. And then you did producing and directing, and I don't really think it was a very good course. Producing and directing, and not and acting as well. And acting as well, but it wasn't so. But it was a strange thing. It was like a new program, and so they had the training programs. I was always looking for shortcuts, so they had the three-year training program as well. And people like Ben Wishall were there at the time. Yeah, he's he's done a little better than me, and um, but he was obviously on the training program, being trained as an actor. And then we were on this master's program with King's College, and to be honest you weren't one of the people that had got through the very prestigious audition process you were just there doing a sort of academic course in yes, association okay. with the university it's almost like they've, they've got your money and you get and what they're selling is the name rada yeah yes i think so i mean obviously king's is an academic institution so you had to get through that element to get your degree mm. but it wasn't going to suddenly get you seen by industry in terms of acting basically sure. and at this point, I kind of gone off acting. <laughs> uh, I was really obsessed with the theatre, and I had just kind of gone off it. Um, I, I, I never really. Oh, I, oh, that was it. So we produced. Um, God, this is years ago. We, we, I produced with the most pretentious, awful program that I found recently, and I nearly died when I read it. It was so embarrassing. And we put on Antigone at the Teatro Technus, and. Um, I, I was playing as Manny. I actually remember one night missing my cue because I was backstage making my mate Millie laugh. And so Antigone was on stage dying alone <laughs> <laughs> while I was backstage telling jokes like, shit, I'm supposed to be there right now weeping next to my sister. But um, I wasn't. So I did that and I'd, I kind of went off acting. I was doing a lot of writing. I just did what sort of thing were you writing? Scripts. Plays. Okay. And... I didn't really know what I was doing with those either. And then I thought, oh, I'll learn French. So I went to France for just for four weeks and I thought, I'll work out what I'm doing. And then I, I just didn't come back. Okay. Okay. So you worked in a Tex-Mex. You stayed there for a year. I didn't, send, you... I didn't stay in the Tex-Mex for a year. I worked in different bars first, um, like where you could speak English to. Then um, I worked for some uh, guy who had a Scottish bar. He was an Iranian guy. He was a bit suicidal. That went wrong after a... Long story we don't have time for, which involved knives and gypsies. Anyway, then I ended up getting the job in the Tex-Mex and learning how to waitress. And then I ended up getting a job in Joe Allen, which was like a 
posh American French burger bar. There's one in Covent Garden. Okay. So people like Vincent Cassell would turn up and have breakfast there. You know, it was it was like burgers, but it was where the cool people went. Okay. And the money was great. I don't think I've ever been so cash rich. And I was living in a little chambre de bonne. You know, like I, I had to go to the... I used to wash in the restaurant because I had no bathroom. <laughs> I was so happy, though. It was next to the Luxembourg Garden. I mean, this is literally down and out in Paris and New York, isn't it? <laughs> but it? But it was super nice because I was in this, I was in the fifth, you know, this amazing Cartier that I just didn't have a bathroom. There was a toilet. The window was broken. I literally peed with, and it got snowed on at the same time. But it was super nice. It was lovely. I had my bicycle. And, um, and I sometimes come back to London for writing work. And then I writing then I got work bored. is that as opposed to writing plays? Well, I'd imagine that I did. I did um, uh, like investment prospectuses for okay. for people and different academic stuff. I can write anything because basically. you've got a law degree and you can write. Yeah, and I just I'm just a good editor and writer, so I can. If anyone's listening, always available if the price is right to uh, fix your stuff. And um, so I came back for some writing work, and then I thought everything was absolutely fascinating. And then when I got to the point where my French was so fluent that um, I realised one day it was pretty boring actually being a waitress. Then I left. So were you, did you have any kind of leanings towards comedy at that time? No, people had said I should do it, but I didn't. What? I actually thought being posh would be a problem. And I, I haven't been totally, I wasn't totally wrong about that. And I loved being, uh, I loved funny acting um, and I liked being funny and I liked writing funny scripts. But I I remember going, I actually, it was Nathan Caton. It was in a pub in a, in Camden. My friend Bethan took me along. She said, this is what you should be doing. And it was upstairs in this tiny, dirty little room. And Nathan Caton was on Can stage. Can you remember which room? Out of interest. I'm um, always it was on Jamestown Road. I don't know, but someone will tell us. Okay. Um, just off Camden High Street in this little pub. I can't remember what the pub was called. And I just remember thinking... It was it was both overwhelming and underwhelming. Does that make sense? The gig, yeah, like the gig the was the gig yeah. was totally underwhelming. And so far as there were five people there, mm-hmm. it was a crap place. It was completely basic, and it was also totally overwhelming in terms of how much confidence you'd have to have to. If you're an actor, if you're acting, you can go on stage and be performing to th- hundreds and hundreds of people, and it's quite high status but it's completely easy and this was so low status but seemed so difficult and it it was also he was very good even then Nathan and um I just remember thinking no this wouldn't be for me she was right I was wrong and it took about another five years four years before I did it and that only came about because of jealousy do go on (laughs) how can I not do that (laughs) Um, well I'd done this writing course at the Royal Court Theatre for young writers and um very good course if you're if you're young um, go along and do it and um it's a free course I think and still and um there were Alexi Zagerman Luke Toulson and me were all friends on this writing course and Luke Toulson at the time was teaching and I used to call him Mr. Plan B, because he wanted to be an actor and he was a great writer, but he was teaching, you know, so we always had a backup. Alexi Zagerman was an actress and there was me and I wanted to be an actress and a writer. And then years later, I was temping between writing jobs and it ended up that I was um, basically writing between temping jobs. So it was supposed to be that I was doing the occasional bit of reception work, Mm -hmm. 
because I had so much writing work on. And then it ended up being that I had loads of reception work and barely any writing work. And I was in this office without any windows with this girl who kept talking about her Louis Vuitton handbag and her boyfriend at this desk. I wanted to kill myself. And I was, this is back in the MySpace days, so this is a long time ago. And I was, I was, I'm MySpace, Luke Tolson, thinking, I bet he's as unhappy as I am. He'll still be, <laughs> he'll still be in that school. We can go out for a pint and you'll feel like a winner. Do you know what I mean? Because you know that you're good at something, but you know, life is hard. It just doesn't work out necessarily. I thought, I'll just, I'll get in touch with Mr. Plan B. And um, it turned out that he was doing exceptionally well. He'd won a Perrier with his double act, mm-hmm. Houston and, uh, Tulsa and Harvey. And he was doing stand-up and he'd been in the Hackney Empire thing. And I was so overwhelmed. I had to leave the office. I had a panic attack. Felt very angry. I smoked some fags and I really wanted to hurt someone old and vulnerable, preferably. And I didn't know why I was feeling so ill. And I spoke to my friend and she said, You're jealous. I had never been jealous before. I didn't, I hadn't had sexual jealousy. I hadn't had jealousy. I didn't know what it was. It's like a physical thing. I was like, Oh, you're right. I've read about this in so many novels. And um, I went along and I saw him do a gig and he was doing that gig with Holly Walsh and David Whitney and Joe Wilkinson. And they were all so nice. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And I booked a gig the next day and that was it. When you discovered that, that moment of this is what I want to do, I'm really fascinated by that moment as it applies to lots of people, definitely. And, and yours is a, a story whereby you bring yourself, you, you found comedy in as unique a way as anyone else finds comedy. Like, I've never heard that variation, that version of the story. I think everyone's got their kind of unique way unless they've Absolutely. signed up to a course. And even then, the moment before one decides to sign up for a course, I'm sure, is every colour of the rainbow. Yeah, and whatever your reason is, if you're listening, don't start, because there is is no room for you. And we were talking about this earlier, and you suggested that you had actually inspired some people through your podcast. I didn't say inspired, I said nudged. All I've done is nudge people. And I would like to stop anyone feeling nudged, because there is no room at the end. Pull up the ladder, as Henning's fond of saying. Exactly, exactly. So that moment of this is what I want to do, you mentioned they were all so nice. And presumably you, I I think you, like I was pre-stand-up, I was was an actor for a very short while. I did an MA kind of, well, not an MA, but like a a post-grad acting course for a bit and was an actor for a bit. And before that, I was doing street shows. And before that, I was just kind of quasi-circus performer. Yeah, we won't go into it. The audience are tired of hearing about it. Um, The audience, sorry, people. Um, But um, I was drifting around not knowing what I was. And it sounds like you were drifting around. Oh, I definitely was drifting. So when that moment happens that you go, it's this, or it might be this, what was it that was so magnetic about it that it, it was so it. obvious i can't describe it it was as obvious as it hadn't been obvious the first time my friend had said this is really what you should be doing um i didn't get it then and i think much later on probably because i had been drifting and i didn't know how to how to to cling on to something it suddenly became so clear that everything i had been doing writing performing everything i had been doing socializing sitting in pubs drinking everything my life Actually, if you do comedy, you have total control over all of those things. So it's very different to being an actor. And so far as then you're waiting to look right, sound right, be the right height next to someone else that's already been cast. You're waiting for the right script, the right part, the right director, the right venue. Um, comedy is absolutely the opposite of that. You're in control of where you're booking your sets, 
what you're writing, what you're doing. You can change your persona. I've seen people change their personas for the for the worst. My God, what I saw one guy have a breakdown, and he um he came back, and he came back on stage in this luminous green cat suit, very slim man, tiny tiny penis. Maybe that was his one of his crises. It was one of those things where you expose yourself totally, like he was totally exposed in this green cat suit. He didn't have any jokes. Um. But you can reinvent yourself in that way, for better or for worse. And I, and you can see what suits you. Like I remember working at the beginning with um, uh, Dr. Brown when he was miming in um, Upstairs and Angel. It's got a different name now, but you know, the Camden Head and Angel. Mm-hmm. And he was miming and no one really got what he was doing. And it was awkward to watch because you can be crap and have jokes. And even if they're crap jokes and you're a crap performer it's enough for the audience to chuckle along and have a nice time. It's not uncomfortable. Whereas if you're going to go on to achieve something amazing like Dr. Brown has done. The first stage is quite uncomfortable for the audience, I think. Um, but so, but I think it's probably more interesting as a journey. It's not a journey I could ever go on because it's not my cup of tea. And so I couldn't, I couldn't bear to do it. I feel sick if people aren't talking. If you're, that's really interesting. I haven't heard anyone sum it up quite like that before. You can be crap and have crap jokes as a comic and get away with it. Yeah, you'll never get good. Um, you could get good if you start writing good jokes and start performing well, don't get me wrong. But you um, you could always have crap jokes and always be a crap comic and always have an all right time. Or you could do something really hard like Dr. Brown and it will be harder at the beginning and then get to something absolutely incredible. Or you could work on your craft and get better. Okay. But I think it's easier to start doing material than it is to start as a mime act or to start as a you know i think that's hard i don't know how he did that and he's he's very good at it so this is tanya ladies and gentlemen a very funny lady very switched on lady and a very funny comedian as well we'll get right back to her in a moment uh the boutros would like to apologize of course for those of you just uh, listening for the first time or who are not up to speed the boutros is my firstborn son uh, some six weeks old, weighing approximately 10 pounds at the moment, not when he arrived. Uh, he'd like to make very clear that he is neither ra- he's neither racist nor misogynist. Uh, he loves people of all colours and creeds and uh, men, women and anyone for whom uh, gender is fluid. So uh, <laughs> he's he's a, he's a happy little chap, the Boutros. And um, he, well, is he? It's difficult to tell because he's, he's, he's not quite smiling at the moment. He does smile and you go, mm, that's wind. Anyway, enough baby chat for now. Uh, there might be a, a sous-on more later on. Who knows? Uh, let's just thank everybody that came to the uh, the shows that I've been doing. The tour is going great guns. Uh, we've done uh, Birmingham now, which was fab. We've done Nottingham, which was really good fun in a great venue called Daskino. Um, and uh, hello to Owen and uh, Ray, who is a, a big fan of my, my early work on CBBC that I don't like to talk about. Uh, and indeed, Stephen um, and plenty of other people besides. Uh, thank you to everyone who said hello. And also the crazy lady that hugged me as well. I don't remember your name. I'm sorry. I did make a note, but I don't have that note in front of me. I know that we've corresponded in the past and uh, I didn't find your hug to be as uh, frightening or threatening as you feared it might be. (laughs) So thank you very much. Um, Thank you as well. I mean, the show was banging. That was great fun. But thank you to everyone that stuck around. Again, like the Birmingham show, 20 people stuck around for the uh, for the off the record ComCom Q&A. And we had a really good time. And I'm I'm so pleased to be cultivating uh, an audience of listeners who have really interesting questions to ask and interesting things to say. So thanks to everyone that came to that. And then just uh, two nights ago, uh, I did. I took the tour show an hour to Kingston uh, to outside 
inside the box, which is a fantastic venue. And uh, loads of people came, including a party of 12 confused Danish girls. So thanks, Danes. Uh, you were great fun, too. Um, and again, people hung around. It, it was so great. I'm having so much fun. Uh, I did a, I did an hour and then due to a sort of misunderstanding on the booking thing, I didn't realize I was booked in to do like 50 minutes either side of an interval, which is brilliant. And it was what I wanted all along, but, uh, in the booking process for the tour, and this is entirely my fault. The title of the show is an hour. And so it was booked in for an hour. <laughs> and of course, what I'd love to be doing is two forties or two fifties either side of an interval. So the fact that we, that I was rather taken by surprise when I got the details that morning actually worked out really in my benefit. We did the show. I did about 35 minutes of new stuff in the second half, and then we did this Q&A. Uh, I can't promise that everywhere, but do come along to those shows. Check comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour underscore 2016, or just go to comedianscomedian.com and follow the links, for heaven's sake. And while you're there, why not donate? Why not donate to the show? Uh, you are a valued listener. I trust you. I love it when you send me money and I love it when you send me messages, emails and tweets and what have you. And uh, I really appreciate all of the contact you give me and the support that you give this podcast. So if you are enjoying it, if you've been enjoying it a lot recently, if you, a couple of people recently have donated and sort of mentioned a specific series of episodes, someone said, I'm donating for Patton Oswalt, Ronnie Chang, so-and-so. I mean, that's very kind of you. <laughs> you don't need to do that. But, um, but thanks if that's, if that's how it works in your head. And you go, yeah, that Patton Oswalt episode was worth a pound. And the others, the others I swiped for free. So if you would like to donate, feel free. You can do that in a recurring fashion or you can make a, a one-off payment of £5, £10, £20, whatever you see fit. Buy me the equivalent of what you'd spend on a bottle of wine and uh, uh, multiply the duration of a bottle of wine, how long you get out of it, by the 200 and something hours that, uh, that we produce. No, I mean, you know, you do your own sums and uh, and come to whatever conclusions you see fit thank you very much to everyone that is continuing to support the show and the subscription payments as well that's not something that i regularly whenever someone sets one up i thank them and it's uh, very much appreciated obviously i then get a little ping on my phone once a month and uh, i don't then go thanks again thanks again for a pound thanks again for two pounds um, but you know that you are very much in my hearts so um that's all of that stuff uh, i'm gonna quickly just no i'll tell you what i'll repeat i'll tell you the uh, the other tour locations uh, at the end of the podcast just previous to the uh, just in front of the uh, the waffle bit which has nothing to do with any farmyard animals regardless of what you may have heard that'll do for now let's get back to the absolutely brilliant Tanya Edwards Selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You talked about that idea of being an actor and not having any control. How much control do you feel that you have as a stand-up? Not in a not in a kind of wider subject, the, the craft of stand-up, the life of a stand-up is such, but you... Tanya, 
how much control do you feel you have over your work and career now compared to how much you felt you had at the beginning? Well, firstly, in terms of acting, let's be serious. I was never an actor. I didn't have an agent. I didn't do a three-year drama course and I didn't have... um, you know, a modelling contract. And, you know, there was no way, obvious way in for me. I just, apart from being on stage throughout university and at school, which is, you know, I don't know necessarily that that can get you anywhere. So I don't want to put any actors off. But um, I think that however good you are in acting, you are at the mercy of other people. Whereas at comedy, it's, it's like, no, it's like every other business. Obviously, if you're young, you're beautiful, you're clearly going to be make a great presenter, you're going to be fast-tracked through. And obviously, if you're leaving acting, for example, and you're coming into comedy and you already have a reputation, you can be fast-tracked through. Um, and I think everybody can sit at home and think someone's had better luck than me or, or I'm so much better than that person and why haven't I had their breaks? But the reality is, is that it's a personal journey, comedy, and you're trying, I, I, I am anyway, to become a better comedian. And the way to do that is to practice and to write more. And you have total control over that. Um, I mean, you're only your own enemy. It's, it's like uh, trying to make yourself exercise. You know, it's, if you're doing it. Well, yeah, I, that's a really good analogy. I think um, it is. You are in control, but you're also... It's almost like you're in control, but you're at the mercy of... It strips you back to being at the mercy of your willpower and how much you're prepared to put in. And those kind of... Yeah, and I I think that's uh, the bane of being a freelancer full stop. So when I used to freelance, it was pretty much the same thing, which is how you could end up temping instead of working, you know. Um, I I definitely have a a problem with my willpower as well. I have very little. And I think that when you have more opportunities and targets to work for, so when I write for other people... I'm oh gosh, sorry. Um, When I work for other people, I am much more productive than I'm working for myself. Because I'm embarrassed and I, I'm trying so hard to impress people and I find it much easier to write for other people because I'm listening to their persona. Yes. Let's... Um, I can hear someone else's character much more than I can hear my own. Is that right? It was right. I think now I'm getting a better idea of what I'm doing. So can we talk about writing for other people? Yeah, yeah. So for what other people have you written? You don't need to name individual acts, but what sorts of writing jobs have you done? Um, I worked on stand-up for the week as part of the writing team. and um, that was Write, a, Writing for an individual or writing, writing for lots writing of Writing different... for an individual okay. um, as part of the team. They did most of their own writing, to be honest. It was interesting writing on a writing team. First, I didn't know what I was doing, so it was a great learning experience. That was my first proper writing job for comedy. Mm-hmm. Um but I think if you have writers, then often what you're doing is practicing your stuff because you've got a very limited amount of time to hone that material before you're performing it, which isn't like stand-up. I practice my stand-up for months and months and months before yes. um, before you, I would ever have. And I've never had the same kind of audience that those shows were reaching. You know what I mean? So you're a very quick turnover of things for a huge number of people. Um, it was a very interesting experience. I don't know that it's my... I don't think it's the best format for a show. It's been stopped now, stand up for the week. But um, that was very interesting. And then, so, in, in what respect? Let's just let's just look at that. In what respect? Because it, it was giving... So basically, it's a, it's a lie that a topical show like 8 Out of 10 Cats or Mock the Week is um, not prepared. Of course, there is preparation to it. I, I think that a show like Have I Got News For You, the only preparation is reading the papers, so it's slightly more spontaneous but most shows 
there is preparation there are there is jokes are written am i am i destroying an illusion here no I, uh, certainly not for anyone working in comedy and uh, other people on this have talked about writing and the amount of preparation that goes on obviously when you see a tv show like mock the week there's a lot of spontaneity going on in the course. back and forth but also i i think the general public is aware that yeah. and I, I, people aren't coming up with perfect jokes i think it's also very much the same in stand-up so in stand-up if you are ready and if you have material then you can go completely off your script and you can chat with the audience and you can have a great time but if you imagined that you could go up on stage for 20 minutes without any material and that something magical would just happen firstly it doesn't happen like that because people can sense your desperation so you don't even get witty off the cuff banter and and i think we will never know the extent to which that is a shared illusion by the audience like with a magic trick the audience definitely know the person isn't magic and they love being fooled with stand-up I think some of the audience do think that we just get up there and improvise perfectly crafted stuff. I really think some no, of I them do. No, I do think that because I've, I've read in comments and yeah. I know you should never <laughs> read the comments unless you want to hear you know, how many different ways someone should be assaulted. I mean, it's very weird, some of the oh. shit people write underneath clips. But I, I do think what's interesting is I have read under people's clips, but I've seen them do this somewhere else. You know, like you... It's like an album. A band doesn't go out and play their song once and then never play it again. It's just jam at every gig. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's not jazz. I mean, it has a jazz element when people riff, but they only riff when they can play music. Mm -hmm. And the equivalent of playing music in comedy, for me anyway, is having some actual material that you can write material. Um, It's not just that you're a raconteur. People aren't that interesting. And stuff that happens in real life is often doesn't work well on stage because people think you've written it. Weirdly, that's when people think you've written something. So if you say something amazingly outrageous about someone... I've got an excellent story about my my friend who had sex with this guy. He was really into tights. It's complicated. But I'd love to do something like that on stage. But on stage, people would think that was the most outrageous thing I could think of writing. And it's not at all. It's just the worst thing I've heard that's happened when one of my friends has gone to bed with someone. But it doesn't, it doesn't translate as well necessarily the truth. Sometimes yes. when the truth is too good, it sounds fake. I think also there is something about a moment of improvising in the room when you're clearly improvising with things that are just happening afresh and you get a round of applause in a way that your your best joke might not land. Then nothing's ever better than something fresh in a gig. I actually got an email once from someone in a show who'd said that um, I'd made a joke that maybe the girl that he was with was his secret. I was talking about secrets and lies. It was at a preview for a new show. And because my show was so unprepared, there was a lot of, banter mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and i really needed this guy i did draw, oh, draw, God. draw, draw from that laugh exactly what you will dear listener <laughs> god did i need him and um and it i just thought that this girl probably was his secret you know you know he sent me this huge email afterwards he got hold of me through facebook and he'd said that he'd had this terrible fear that he would go to a comedy club and someone would realise that this girl was in fact a secret and he was cheating on his girlfriend and blah, 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 blah. And I was like Darren Brown. And I was like, honestly, I'm not like Darren Brown. It was just really obvious and you were feeling guilty. You know, so people can read things differently in their heads. But in terms of audience response and his response, it was such a great moment i didn't torture him either by the way i left it it was it was fun like it was a lot of riffing in that show but riffing there's nothing better than it i do think it's the greatest thing but it doesn't also work in bigger venues so the bigger your stage you can't riff when you can't see they couldn't riff at the apollo because you can't see anybody 
you know, so it's it's unrealistic to think it can just be improvised. So in the in the writers' room atmosphere of somewhere like Stand Up for the Week, yeah. are you able to riff? Are you working on a thing collectively? Because I, th- I have to say that's the thing that kind of paralyzes me. I'm I can riff in front of an audience, not so much in front of other comedians. I don't have well, I don't have the confidence breathed into me in the way that I can play if a crowd is enjoying my work. I can rel- I can just shift a gear completely and become this totally other performer that just make just stuff tumbles out of me. I have never been able to do that in a writer's room. Well, I think a writer's room is different. Firstly, I was very lucky because I didn't know what I was doing. The person that we were writing for did know what they were doing and had a clear idea of it. Okay. So often it was improving their stuff or helping them find a topper or, you know, it, it was that kind of environment and everyone was friends already, which always helps. And I don't think anyone was bothered if they sounded stupid. Mm. And some of it, because it was a topical show, was about knowing what a story was. And I've always been very aware of the news and I'm I'm politically up to date, so I could be useful, even if I couldn't be funny. Um, but I think the, the problem possibly with that show, possibly not, I could be entirely wrong, but was that it was doing stand-up about topical things. So when you're in a... When you're doing something like, have I got news for you, people are being witty about the news... But when you're doing stand-up about something, it suggests that you care. And people don't necessarily care about world politics. So when Andrew Lawrence did stand-up for the week, he was doing his style of Andrew Lawrence comedy, but about, for example, people starving in Africa. Now, he's a bitter act that is his persona, and it's brilliantly funny, I think. But when he was applying it to world politics, it I didn't think it worked for me because it was too harsh and it wasn't true. He doesn't feel that bitter about the world. You know, he feels that bitter about his local life. Mm. Or I, I'm, I'm picking him out because I admire him so much. Um, I know he's become a controversial figure recently, but I think he's a great comedian. But I think that a show like that where people had to do 10 minutes of something that wasn't necessarily their thing, you know, like I, don't, I can't remember who did what, but someone doing 10 minutes on sport when they're not necessarily interested in sport. Whereas something like Mock the Week, your own personality can come out more maybe or have I got news for you you're riffing on the news in a way that you might actually agree with your own opinions it's more honest in in that respect I think yes but I've written for people who are doing those shows like mock the week or um twitter the year or blah 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 and then but that would be writing for someone's persona and how is so i mean that is a fascinating idea that you find it more you find it more kind of accessible easier maybe to write for someone else's persona i always think that's we've all got to bear that in mind when someone comes up to us and gives us the perfect topper for a joke that we're like oh god it was staring me in the face oh i just find that so annoying i don't i'm now yet to being given a topper that i liked Right, okay, okay. And I hate it when people say it, I can't bear it. And I, the other day someone told me to turn my one of my jokes around, which would have made it not a joke. And I, <laughs> and I find it okay. so frustrating and I, I hate it. And, I, and that's why I think it's so incredible if you can take advice and maybe you need to be able to in order to get, to get a step further. I think as the greatest gift in the world is being able to take constructive feedback and I haven't ever mastered that. Why do you think that is? Is that is that something that that is kind of resonant with your approach to comedy generally, or your approach to life? You're a very dry comic. You're quite a dry person. I just I think I'm I think I'm probably unbearable in that way. I love telling other people what to do. I love giving toppers. 
the number of times I've said to someone, oh, I really think if you did X, Y, or Z, or you're missing a trick there, or that doesn't make sense. I, I don't think there's anything more interesting than the sound of my own voice giving other people <laughs> have you, have advice you, and their stuff. Have I you seen people incorporate those and find success with them? Have you got a good track yeah, record for that? I have a good track record, but who cares? Like I, I personally find it incredibly irritating. But I love doing it for other people. And I think if you can control yourself and not do it unless someone asks you to, yes. <laughs> um, then it can be great. So a couple of my friends love advice and ah, that what a turn on. I mean, forget forget everything else. I can just go and watch a show and, and give advice. And I um, absolutely think that's, for me, that is the the business. But I can't ask for it the other way around. I wonder if you've invented or, or no, you've not invented, but stumbled upon almost a, like a niche industry within comedy. I mean, are you sort of talking about almost like being a director? Um, could you don't, could you, are you, have you got any interest I've been, in I've been credited, I've been credited with the directing, but I would consider that a very loose credit. Um, but, but I, yeah, I, I would, um, I've seen a lot of, I go to a lot of shows and preview if people want advice on it. But I think um, I don't need someone's money for that. It's just I should pay them. <laughs> it's like you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, it's, like, it's like someone else paying for a dirty phone call. I love it. So let's, let's, sorry, I feel like I should have left more silence at the end of that sentence, which was beautiful and is going in the show notes for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk then about you and your persona. And you were saying you find it harder. Let's look at it that way round, that you find it harder to write to your own persona than you do to come up with toppers for other people's personas. Well, I think that's a very good point about the posh thing. I never saw myself as posh. When people said that I ought to make jokes about the fact that I sounded posh, I just felt defensive. I wanted to explain to them that I wasn't posh, which is stupid. Yes, um, because it doesn't matter, does it? If it, the audience reads that, that yeah, is the truth it, of... It doesn't it's matter. Like a, it's like in court. If you're convicted of murder, you are a murderer. Exactly. And I, I think... And it's almost as disliked. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that it's... Um, I think that a lot of the things that you have to understand in your own persona that are advantages are things that you possibly don't like about yourself. Say that sentence again. That was brilliant. Say that again. The, I think a lot of the things in your own persona that you can use as an advantage are things that you actually don't like about yourself. I think that's exactly right. So it can take a lot longer to recognise that those things can be funny. Particularly if you don't have the ability to take on board criticism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that I've sometimes seen people being self-deprecating in a way that is actually true. So I've often, I'm very self-deprecating on stage, but often it's... And I've, I've seen people more guilty of this than me. People that are self-deprecating on stage, but actually giving away nice compliments about themselves. Humble so, bragging self-deprecation. Yeah, like, oh God, the, my issue is that I read so many books and sometimes books just aren't challenging enough for me, so I read them in French. <laughs> I just wanted to get that in about myself, by the way, because that's true. But um, <laughs> no, but it, it is that kind of thing where you're, someone's acting as if they're being self-deprecating, but they're not really. And I find that a lot with inverted commas, political comedy, well, I think it's very patronising and it's not very insightful or intelligent necessarily, but people are letting everyone know what a great guy they are mm. and what side they're on. And I think it's much funnier to be saying the opposite thing. And I think the joke is always in saying what isn't true. Like, I'm not... Um, I think in most comedy clubs, at least, people are pretty on the ball. I, I, haven't, I haven't gigged to many people that want a fascist country or 
or want abortion to be illegal or so you don't need to be preachy so to be funny in those situations for right on people in inverted commas it's actually much funnier to say something that isn't right on does yes. that make sense yeah absolutely. but people are reluctant to do that and i think in terms of your persona to realize i've got a couple of jokes now um that do take the piss out of white privilege in a way that's taken me a while. I think there's nothing more boring than someone talking about white privilege, by the way. I think it's tedious, obvious, done, hack. But I've got a joke about my husband being held at customs. And I, I say, um, um, obviously I hate racism. You know, when my husband is held at customs, again, who has to wait for him? No, muggins here and the reason it's funny is because it's such a disgusting way to look at racism is yeah, that it's inconvenienced me and i'm having to wait for three minutes but but i think that the reason i the reason i like that as a joke is that i'm trusting the audience to understand that i'm being an asshole and i as a writer you know you as a writer yeah. i must know that i'm being an asshole sure. and as a persona i don't realize that i'm being an asshole and that's a lot of trust to actually act like a completely spoiled overprivileged, up their own ass person and trust that the audience will find it funny for whatever reason, either because they don't think you realise what a dick you sound or because, or whatever level they get it, I think to not explain that and to not stand there and say, oh, I'm, I've got such white privilege, that is to me is easy and pointless. But if you can, if you can take the flack for being a dick, then you deserve the laugh. But you have to be prepared to look like an arsehole. I'm overusing the words arsehole and dick here. I've got myself confused. Catherine Ryan is a great example. She's one yes. of my favourite comedians. Some of the jokes, especially the ones that have been taken wrong, have been jokes where she looks horrid. But that's the joke. Yes. The joke is that she's looking like she doesn't realise she's sounding horrible. That's why it's funny. Yes. Because you get it. That's It's supposed to be funny. Whereas someone explaining how someone else was horrible or explaining what people should think is not being amusing. Is there is there some something to do with that is closure in the sense of I and I read this in Scott someone, I can't remember his name. He he wrote a guide to comic books and he was explaining the the moment when or like in a movie, in like an Eisenstein movie or something, where you see uh, a man and then you see a hand taking a gun out of the pocket and the the like you don't see that it's the man's hand or gun but you assume it is because that's closure right that's the, it's yeah. the moment between which there's a there's a great book actually called we are our brains by dick swab i mean his name is dick swab and he's, he's still <laughs> successful you've got to love this guy but he actually is talking about people who don't recognize their own limbs and how it can be fixed as easily as by putting a mirror so they can see one of the legs oh it's for amputees okay. so they can see one of the legs and it gets rid of the pain in the missing limb Okay. Even though they know it's not real. Okay. And I think that, and I think you can only see that with jokes when it's a good joke. So you learn it from seeing great jokes. So Julian Dean, one of the best joke writers. Terrific, yeah. He's got a joke. Um, he's got so many good ones. I could just sit here happily massacring them all. But he's got one where he'd love to go back in time to when Hitler was in power and put a bet on it. <laughs> um, but the reason he's so clever is because he's never afraid of looking stupid or nasty or... You know, that's like, it's the, op I, I can't bear it when someone says, oh, I, I'd love to go back and change this and change that. I think, yes. yeah, whatever, everyone would, you know, yawn off. 
what, writing comedy is really hard. Being sincere, I think, is really easy, especially today when everyone thinks that they count or that they're interesting. I mean, this is a very indulgent thing. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't stopped talking about myself for ages, but it's, I think it's We're too easy. We're holding a mirror up to our process to relieve the pain, much like an amputee. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that it's, um, on stage, I think it's boring to, and also who cares? I don't care about all of these people's lives. I think it's very difficult to write a good joke and I think it's great to hear one. So, so the, I, I totally agree with you, but I, I, I think what I was... That is, all, that is all accurate, but I think what I was getting at with the idea about uh, closure is that it is, it's funnier when we have to do the work ourselves. Yes. And when people are um, uh, worthy or sincere, there's no work for us to do. So one of the reasons, in the example of Catherine Ryan, it, because she is take, she's owning the fact that she's being awful... We've got to do that joke. We've got to, that leap rather, we've got to make that closure of, oh, she can't mean this. And that's where the laugh comes from. Yes. And you've got to be a lot more mature and sophisticated as an audience. So there was that ridiculous scandal when she made a joke about her. um, We wanted one of those save the relationship babies, but we got a regular baby. And some righteous witch started saying how you shouldn't make a joke about the part of a child it's difficult for the child and i think we've got to a a point in our society now especially on social media where we think that everyone should be policing themselves and that no one understands how things work of course Catherine ryan is an amazing mother privately that's no one's business anyway you know if you know her personally you know her personally but she's on stage as a comedian and her job is to say the wrong thing and the funny is and, the wrong thing and also now that comedy is very frequently broken down into like memes you know photo of comedian text of joke yeah. no you know you, it's I've got much to get harder myself to find some the of them. subtext <laughs> <laughs> it's much harder to find the subtext everything can be taken out of context more easily everything can be reduced to a sort but of a, binary a, a version joke of- i think a joke is life out of context and when everyone's trying to constantly give context and justifications and and explanations, I, I that's not my that's not the kind of comedy that turns me on. It doesn't interest me. I'm confident that I I'm confident of my own moral compass. If I want to check my moral compass, it wouldn't be in a comedy club. Although actually, it wouldn't be a bad idea. But I would be reading it differently to lots of people. I think. I mean, I have heard people say disgusting things that are apparently politically right on, which have made me so angry. Um, and I have read reviews of those same people, hearing that they're the voice of my time. And you know, can you give me an example? You needn't. You needn't uh, um, identify a person, but what mm, kind of territory are we talking about? I once had a joke about how um, you should put your hand up if you were bleeding. Um, this is a man saying so you should put your hand out. who's bleeding right now um, you're lying because 25% of you are bleeding and you should own your periods and um, and you shouldn't shave your uh, pussies because I like the stink of your hair and this is supposed to be feminism and I'm like you think that feminism is me not shaving because you like the smell of my fanny and I'm supposed to be what like putting you on my shoulders it's, I, it's like I heard a, 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 another male comedian tell me once that burkas or niqab wasn't, weren't an issue because men masturbate over women in niqab too. And that, that wasn't a, a joke. It was a sincere point about how... I, I don't know what the point was, but what I mean is that you can hear things that people are trying to be politically right on or I find it completely confusing. 
I think if they were just trying to be funny or say something that was the opposite of what they thought was the truth, it might at least have a joke in it, even if it wasn't didn't have yes. a moral. Because it's a because it's almost like regardless of whether or not we like those people or their politics, but it's almost what you're saying is the like it's not a good enough joke. There's, I'm there's saying that there's no it. joke. So there was yeah. no joke at all. It was just a speech. Now, as it happened, I didn't agree with that speech. Maybe some people there would sure. agree with that speech. That's fine. It's not my business. I haven't gone to a political rally. So I've gone to hear some jokes and I don't want to hear your opinion if you haven't crafted it into a joke. And if you have crafted it into a joke, it's probably saying the opposite of what you actually think. And I trust that I'm intelligent enough to get that. And if I don't get it or if I disagree with what you're saying underneath your joke, then I'll still admire your joke. Which is why I can like jokes of people whose politics I totally disagree with but I think they're great, funny people. And I don't mind disagreeing with people. I, I, I think we're obsessed with how everyone's got to think the same thing. I don't think that. I love, I love um, hearing other people's opinions. If it's funny, obviously in real life, I can hear their opinions. They don't need to be making me laugh. Do you consider yourself to be privileged? Yes. And do you consider that your appreciation for the amorality of comedy might come from a position of privilege? I consider us all to be privileged in that respect. I was watching MasterChef the other day. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit. And I was feeling very moved. <laughs> I was feeling very emotional. It was the final of MasterChef. He was trying to hold back his tears. And... Um, I was thinking it's a very strange time that we know we know children are physically freezing on the borders trying to get into Europe and that there are wars raging around the world and we're sitting in our nice warm homes feeling weepy over a cookery programme um, for a type of food you can only eat if you're super privileged. Now, obviously, I'm privileged, but I think most people on the comedy circuit are even if you're at the very bottom or the very top of society, you're, you're privileged. Already you're not working in an office, you're assuming things are going to be okay, you're winging it one way or the other. Um, obviously, in, in terms of do I find amorality amusing because I'm privileged? Well, yes, insofar as I'm an atheist. So I find blasphemy of any type amusing instead of appalling or insulting or frightening. I think that's a huge privilege. I'm educated. Um, I, I'm not sitting there laughing at the amorality of, of laughing at people with less than me. That, that's not the kind of amorality I mean. I'm talking no, but about I mean you. But, you, but you just said you would do if it was a good enough joke. Um, I think that's also about punching up and punching down. So I've seen a lot of people make jokes about tramps. I don't know why people seem to hate the homeless. I've yeah, even the word I had the word tramp. I hate joke word, a couple I, of years yeah. ago. I listened back to it. I was like, what was I? What was I thinking? I think, uh, yeah, I think the word tramp is strange. I think um, the idea that of a homeless person is drinking a nice juice, that's something really funny. I heard someone really thinking it was hilarious that someone, a homeless person was drinking uh, juice once. Um, or if someone has a telephone and they're a refugee, that's apparently really funny. I don't think that's, the, I, that's I don't think that's immoral. I think that's just stupid. It's not very, I, I don't really get the joke. It, have to, it has to be a much, much better joke if it's something, if it's punching down. Um, but that, well, that's almost. I think that's what I'm getting at. I completely understand what you're saying, but you're. Are you saying that if someone was punching down, 
if it was a good enough joke, if it appealed to you technically enough, you were like, that's a really good joke. Yes, you because, could forgive the, but, but the, the right wing or the fascist sentiment within it. No, because if, they, if it was the clever joke and you were taking the piss out of the homeless, the person that was taking the piss out of the homeless would look like the arsehole. So the person that was taking the piss would look like the idiot. So when I am saying something that's obviously... When I'm the fool, then it doesn't matter what I'm mocking because I'm the person that's wrong. So I see I see what you mean. So like within it... So in I, other, I suppose what, what I understood from what you were saying was that someone like, you know, Andrew Lawrence, for example, or no, not Andrew Lawrence, someone who is a... a Catherine, Catherine Ryan making a joke about... Um, uh, a save the relationship baby is a perfect example. Yes, because we, you and I know, you know that her no, politics but, and her social politics no, for, are fine, so you can you no, understand. No, but no, but forget it. her politics or her social politics. The reason that's funny, a joke, like you wanted to save the relationship baby and you got a regular one. Firstly, it's just a funny wordplay joke because everyone's been told that a baby is not going to save a relationship, sure. blah blah blah. So it's it's funny that someone could actually try and have a save the relationship one and think they get an ordinary baby. That's just funny. But it's it's also funny because it's recognising on loads of levels that it's it's just funny, and it's not it's not saying that there's anything wrong with the baby. She's not saying I hate my baby. That wouldn't be funny. That wouldn't be clever, though. No, I I totally agree. I I think I thought what you meant was that someone like, for example, Jim Davidson, if he wrote a good enough joke about. You know, I don't, I don't want to tie well, him look, with an accusation of racism necessarily well, let's these talk about, days. Let's talk, you know? well, let's talk about Jerry Sadowitz because he is racist and no one thinks so. So I saw him and Stuart Lee loves him. Everybody loves Jerry Sadowitz. They look at him in the vein of Lenny Bruce, um, who used every single word and therefore took away the meaning from all the words. Now, that's fair enough in the context of Lenny Bruce. Now, if you go and see Jerry Sadowitz, he is a great joke writer, but he's also just an old Scottish bigot. Um, because he's from a different generation to me. And that generation do see things differently, I believe, the older okay. generation. I have to say I've not seen him in 10 So years I went ago. to take, I took my, um, I took my husband, I can't say husband yet, we haven't been okay. married long enough for me to be, my boyfriend, my, <laughs> so I took, I went with Sanjiv to see Stuart Lee. Now, I love Stuart Lee because he's a comedian's comedian. Mm. And um, Sanjiv thought that was quite dry. I thought it was amazing. And then I also took him to see Jerry Sadowitz. I say I took him, you know, it was more my treat. <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't seen Jerry Sadowitz before. And Sanjiv thought Jerry Sadowitz was much funnier than Stuart Lee, mm-hmm. but that he was undeniably racist. Whereas for me, I was in a vortex of middle-class white angst because I was thinking this is so, I felt humiliated watching this person. And it wasn't because he used every racially derogative term, because I understand the argument that you can use all, every single nasty word about anyone that isn't you, and it ceases to have meaning. But he would say something that we were supposed to interpret, I suppose, in a politically ironic way. And then he would do, quote unquote, the packies in the shop and jump around on stage with their funny accents so in other words you can't have your cake and eat it you're either making people laugh at the fact that someone has a different accent to you and is really stupid and works in a shop or you're laughing at the fact that we're giving so much credence to different racial slurs and you couldn't interpret from his gig that we're supposed to be laughing at Sadowitz because he's awful because he's a monster he's a grotesque no because he was trying to do two things at once and you can't sell two things at once you can't sell 
knowingly, none of this means anything because I'm using every bad word. Oh, but now I'm going to have a right old laugh about how stupid these people are. You can have a laugh at how stupid these people are if you're the monster and that's what you're selling. But you can't sell, I'm so intelligent, I know what I'm doing, and I'm just a... You can't have both things. I've seen other people try to do it, where you um, do like a racist chant, but you're basically getting the laughs from the racist chant, yeah. and then you're dismissing it as a racist yeah. chant. Yeah, you've you got, often you've got see a, that on the circuit of people going, oh, my racist nan said, and then they tell a racist joke. Because they just really want to tell the racist joke, yeah. and it's not intelligent enough. But what annoys me is that when someone has written something intelligent that any clearly any right thinking person can see is on the is batting for the right team, if you like, um, they they still don't get it because they they don't get any level of irony. And I also don't think it matters. I don't think it matters if your jokes are off. I think there has to be room to make mistakes. I think there has to be room for people to totally disagree. Like I, because I make a lot of jokes about the fact that my husband's Indian Irish. I feel really sensitive sometimes. Um, and especially in all white audiences can be more um, anxious than mixed audiences. Mm-hmm. So uh, the number of times that Asian people have said to me, they'd much rather more of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I, I, but I could also, if someone said to me one day, actually, I don't like that joke, I think it's racist. I mean... I obviously don't think it's racist. I obviously think my stuff's been tried and tested. I'm obviously not a racist person. But if someone construed something I said in a way that mortified me, I wouldn't necessarily sack off any of my jokes because I believe in them. Okay, thank you. Um, How is comedy treating you at the moment? Really well. I'm actually going to be supporting Catherine Ryan on a couple of dates of her tour, which is is the best thing that's ever happened. Great. because I love her and because the places are huge. What kind of places? Brighton Dome. What's that? Thousands? Fifteen hundred? Seventeen hundred. Seventeen. I've been looking at the pictures of it, getting myself into a fit of excitement. I hope it goes well. Touch wood. Excellent. Um, Good luck. It's funny to me whenever we see someone whose act is... oh, Like I noticed in that, that uh, the show of yours that I saw and then uh, I listened back to the recording... Um, you, it's almost like your, your catchphrase and I don't know if you know how often you say it. You go... Bloody hell. But, oh, do I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's so you. But it's that kind of almost diffident and kind of like, oh, not that you hate it, but like this is this is an imposition. You know, having to do this. And I'm just interested in whenever I see a comic who is like that, and and but obviously they're there for a reason because no one's forcing us to do this. And I'm just interested in the in the the dynamic between projecting this is a pain in the ass. I love comedy. I love it. I, I've, the weirdest thing is that I used to always take a pint on stage and obviously I haven't done that um, in months now. And I thought, because especially when you're not drinking, kind of being in a club where everyone else is having a beer and not being able to have a pint before, not being able to have a pint afterwards, you know, you don't feel so relaxed. It, the actual gigs have been less fun. But being on stage, I felt a euphoria I haven't felt since I started. A really intense, acute desire to be on stage i can't tell you how happy i've been on stage i don't think i'm ever going to have a sip of beer before i go on stage again i think it dents or dulls something that is a total pleasure but i also think it's really irritating when i watch someone go on stage and go hey guys hello i i know it works for audiences but it's just not my thing i i like to i'm very i'm just a it's my persona is to be kind of negative (laughs) but inside I'm full of joy
We could leave it there. There is one question I want to ask more that I... Just because is that's it, a beautiful thing, that's a no, beautiful it's, moment it's, it's to It's probably end. the opposite of the person that's going on stage, how happy they are, and off stage is weeping into their... <laughs> I'm so happy. Yeah. Well, that's... I, I love to blindside people at the end of an episode by going, are you happy? Obviously, you're... <laughs> you know, yeah. it's all good. It's all good. Um, I looked at your blog. Yes. And I saw some really well-written angry political blogs (laughs) yeah and i'm not familiar with those forming part of your stand-up and i just wanted to talk about whether you have tried to do stand-up about them or whether you have done it and i've missed it or what the relation your stand-up show the last show that i saw was about your wedding and it it was about um and the very i really love the stuff about working out from the from the photographer, you could tell who the photographer fancied. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, that's very, very That's very true. But, um... <laughs> that's very funny. Um, but, uh, but it didn't have a, an overt political thrust. I, I, I write a... the, Sorry to no, no. interrupt you as you're trying to answer my question. Sorry, no. But I found that you were very passionate and informed and very well written. And it was obviously, it's a different style. You know, the blog writing is a different style to your stand-up. But have you tried, that's my question, have you tried to do that in stand-up? I haven't cracked it yet. And I, so I haven't tried it. In so far as, I love writing and I publish a lot of articles when I get some beer in my bonnet about something. But I guess it's that I don't think it's funny when, I think it's very funny to read an article when someone's wound up about something and they're being ironic about something that's obviously making them angry but I think it's quite boring on stage to watch someone get angry about something that you should all obviously be angry about I think that's when it becomes preachy so when I in my show talk about race freedom of speech um Tim Hunt for example or Mm. or what I think people should be allowed to say and I've got lots of jokes about things that I think are very serious in my show and I disguise them all under a guise of holidays and domesticity and weddings because i think in stand-up if i can hide everything and a joke i can still make lots of points and i'm yet to work out how to make more points that's my goal for this year's show but i i never want them to be overt i want them to be hidden i want it to be funny i want people to i've i've seen very clever excellent stand-ups manage to be overtly intelligent but i would rather do it incidentally and i haven't quite nailed it yet i haven't worked out how to hide enough things in jokes so that it's slightly richer um and also i think you do need to sometimes give people indicators look how clever i am in terms of if you want to get a radio show or something off the back of your edinburgh show if you're being more professionally minded about it but for an audience, I'd rather they couldn't... For whom do you need to give indicate For potential producers of things? Maybe, and also maybe for some types of audience, they would feel more rewarded if they or, thought... Or they'd look, they'd look harder to find the more you know, they think I, You know, they think, oh, I, that was so stimulating. But I don't want people to, to notice that they feel stimulated. I want them just to feel happy. I really think laugh, making people laugh is the hardest thing. I think even harder than making people laugh would be making people laugh and making them think slightly more than I am. But I haven't, that's, that's the, that's the journey I'm on, I guess. So finally then, what is the, what's the, what is the process? What do you look like? What does your career look like in 10 or 15 or 20 years? What do you, like, if everything went like a dream, 
what does it look like? In 10 years, I'd say I've always been very ageist. I thought that I was too old when I was 20. So I obviously think I'm too old now that I'm 25. <laughs> <laughs> Stuart knows how funny that is. Um, uh, so I, I hope that I've written a couple of books in 10 years and that I've put my nationwide tours and my um, stint in America behind me. Okay. And I think, I think in, in 10 years' time, it would be nice to be writing and doing... I, I um, Maybe it'd be nice to be someone like Jackie Mason or Joan Rivers. You know, there when you're 60, 70, dead. But I... Um, I always, you, don't, you don't think so? I, I I really don't know. Some of my... I think also we're, we're less ageist than we used to be. So now we're very used to seeing people who are 40, 50, 60 on stage and screen. And, um, and I think we're much more interesting and much more knowledgeable as we get older. But I'm also a reader. I am a reader. And I think I'll get to a point where I would just like to be writing and discussing stuff. Maybe doing more... You know, I don't know. I do wonder if a lot of us are in the back of our minds relying on, oh, well, if I stick to this, then when I'm old, I'll be one of those very few people that's very old. And I think enough of us are thinking that, that in 30 years, it'll be like, oh, 80 uh, is the new 50. And it's yeah, cluttered maybe. up with comedians. And also some of my favourite comedians are older. So I think Rich Hall is one of the greatest people on stage mm. and I love him and I worship him and I adore him but I also see him as a kind of caricature a character definitely actually not a caricature he's a character I can't credit myself with being such an interesting character as Ritual and he's a brilliant musician and he's fascinating um I think you'd have to I don't have that vision of myself I think I don't see myself as incredibly interesting to be honest I mean despite the my ability to talk about myself at length. I find it very hard to project into the future and think people will still give a crap when I'm 60, 70, 80. Mind you, you weren't asking about that. I'm not 50, guys. <laughs> uh, and I'm not that bad at maths. But uh, I don't know. Where do you see yourself in the future? I don't know. And I'm not on trial here. <laughs> yeah. You're not on trial here. Um, I don't know. I have no idea. I am... Um, I don't know. I'd love to be on... I know what I'd like. I'd like to take over Ian Hislop's spot on Have I Got News For You? Or Paul Merton's, actually. And then I can just gaze at Ian Hislop every Friday. And I'd like to be that funny. In that in that comfortable persona. And do you think you can... I don't want to be schlepping around the country. Here's the last question. Do you think you can achieve that if you are... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sort of suggests, I think you sort of suggested that in 10 years' time you'd like to not be gigging anymore. Do you I'd like think to be gigging, can... I think. Um, in 10 years' time, I'd like to be gigging. I don't know. I really don't know. I just wonder I think, if... what, what is gigging? I don't want to be doing junglers. I'd like to be doing Soho Theatre. You know, I'd like to, in fact, in 10, I'd like to be somewhere bigger than Soho Theatre. You know, I'd like to do the Apollo who wouldn't like to have Louis C.K.'s career? But I think that I don't want to be, you know, in a basement pub where the plumbing's gone and the joke is that the whole place smells like shit. That is still almost funny to me now. But I can't... And also, it sounds really weird. Lots of this is about status. We've now been going a lot longer. 
So the things that were so exciting and novel when you were new and you'd been going for six months and you didn't care that you'd spent nine hours in the car to do 15 minutes to four people, you know, now those things, if you're still doing them after X number of years, it means things aren't going very well. And there is a there is a point where you can go, and I kept going even though it was so terrible, and everyone's listening to themselves being interviewed on Radio 4 in five years' time when everything has been a success. So, But the reality is if I was in my current position, I wouldn't be doing it in 10 years' time. Whereas if I was in a better position, if I was in Rich Hall's position, I'd be doing it until I was wheeled off the stage in a coffin. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. So that was Tanya. We corresponded after the recording of the show because she we would we were debating whether to keep in uh, her use of the p word, the racial epithet that she was uh, uh, reporting on uh, in that Jerry Sadowitz section. And uh, she would be mortified to think that anyone thought she was using that word casually. I assured her that no one listening to that could possibly listening to this episode could possibly think that. And we left it there. So uh, apologies if any offence was caused, but uh, I don't think I'm apologising on behalf of either Tanya or me. So it's <laughs> probably a meaningless apology then. But you see what I mean. What I mean is uh, Tanya was concerned that she would come across in, in a way that I don't think she could possibly come across. So. Listen, I mean, a really interesting conversation. What, I, what I'm so enjoying about the, the breadth of guests that I, I try and get onto this show is that we don't just get the inside stories from the, uh, the most famous comedians, but also there are people like Tanya who's out there working very hard, doing some terrific work and doesn't necessarily have the profile or has so far had some of the opportunities uh, afforded uh, our peers. So uh, it's really exciting to be able to bring you people that you might be much less familiar with. So if Tanya is indeed at Edinburgh this year, I I heartily recommend you go and see her. Now, uh, before we do the waffle, just a couple of things about the tour. Windsor sold out. Windsor is happening now. It may already have happened by the time you hear this. Um, It's sold out and then they uh, moved the... the uh, room to a... I'm just showing off. There's no need to tell you this because you will almost certainly be listening to this once it's come out. But how exciting is this? It was a small room. Uh, we've sold it out. We, I, you, we've all bought tickets and there it is. Um, and uh, we've had to move it to a bigger room, which is so exciting. Who knew I was big in Windsor? Uh, coming up over the next few weeks, I won't do all of them, but I am coming very soon to the Hall Theatre in Crawley. That's so great. Looking forward to that. Excess Malarkey is going to be an absolute joy. And that is one in which I'm doing 240s or 250s either side of an interval. So we'll get the show. We'll get some new stuff, which uh, I'm so excited about. I did a preview last night. And just, I'm just at that phase when, oh, I'm, I'm out of the woods of oh my God, I've got nothing. And now I'm into, oh, look, I've got all this stuff to talk about. And I just, it's just so satisfying. Someone, um, uh, someone from New Zealand, uh, my friend David, brilliant comedian in New Zealand, David uh, Corios. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, he's also got a confusing fake Facebook name, which doesn't help matters. David, very funny, new, original Kiwi comic. Uh, He and I were chatting on Facebook recently and he was going, oh, you know, I, I don't want to come to Edinburgh until I've got just the right show. Uh, and until it's all, you know, until it's all ready there and ready to go because he knows Edinburgh's going to be so hard. And he was saying, you know, how long does it take to get to a, a stage where you're just knocking the shows out? And my honest answer is, I don't fucking know. I don't know, but I am. I mean, this is the sixth show and um, I am at least at a stage. Where, you know, the key thing, the key thing for me and the difference, six shows in or five and a half now under my belt, 
I think, and you might find this uh, uh, positive and encouraging, or you might not, but the key difference is I find it's harder now to talk myself out of a fun writing experience. Do you know what I mean? That you write, you write, you write, and and so much of the early writing of my hours of all my material was just, it was just inhabited by this awful, I mean, this is the waffle already, you might as we've started. And it was inhabited, it was sort of infested with this kind of, every three attempts at getting a successful punchline, I'd go, oh God, I'm not supposed to do that. I obviously, I obviously can't do this. I'm crap at it. And the good news is, I think this is good news, it gets harder and harder to do that to yourself once you've built up more and more of a bank of proof. It's easy to be two hours in going, oh God, maybe I only had two hours in me. It's harder really doing the maths to go, oh, maybe I only had five hours in me plus that 20 that's working in clubs that's probably going to be in that. No, I probably can write another show. So um, that, that I hope is some words of encouragement and I'm sure that's appropriate for for whatever walk of creative life you're involved with. So Crawley coming up soon, um, Excess Malarkey on the 23rd of March in Manchester. It's going to be so much fun. It's such a great club. And currently the, the, the leaderboard uh, is Bristol, I'm very pleased to say, the wardrobe on Old Market in Bristol. Um, that's on the 24th of March, so next week. That is already, we are over 60%, which means it is the greenest green on the colour-coded chart. Uh, coming up very soon as well, Southend, uh, Joker Comedy Club on the 27th of March, uh, the Golbenki in Canterbury on the 29th, really looking forward to that, and Aldershot on the 30th. I'll, I'll tell you those, all of the March dates for now, and the, you, you know the others are coming up, I'll inform you later. Um, but I'm really grateful to Aldershot, because I think out of all the venues we've been dealing with, the West End Centre have done the best work in pushing the show, promoting the show, mail-outs, posters, all the rest of it. There's nothing more depressing than working to promote a show and then arriving outside the venue and not seeing a single poster and going, oh, right, I wonder I wonder how many more tickets we could have sold. Not to worry. So um, that's all of that. Thanks for your donations. Do tweet at ComComPod uh, or email me info at comedianscomedian.com if you have anything you would like to contribute. I was listening to the Kerbo podcast recently and they say, um, they say, remember, you can take part. Like that, I thought, oh, that's good. That's a very well-written BBC sentence. You can, you can take part. You can join the conversation. What it basically means is you can occasionally bully me about things that you're less keen on the show. So um, I don't know if anyone did a log for me for this one. I don't think so. I think I put this one together myself. Um, thanks to Nathan Wood uh, for his continuingly tireless efforts in uh, editing and uploading the show. And thanks to everyone that's been coming along to the live shows. That concludes the podcast. Hello, my horses. Time for a very quick bit of horseplay. Um, I haven't really picked a specific thing to talk about. Something. Sometimes I've. I'm experimenting. Sometimes I. Uh, I'll make a little note or two of something, some burning issue, and uh, this time I thought, well, I'll just. I'll just get stuck into it. Really fun show at Top Secret last night. I think for March, this hour is in really good shape, which probably means I'm being overconfident, and that later in this week I will listen back to that show and go, oh God. Uh, that is not as good as I thought, but, um, I think, I think I'm getting better at, at roughing out the territory. That's all I'm doing. I'm not tweaking jokes. I'm not, I'm trying not to, I am tweaking jokes. Then I'm going, what are you doing? You're wasting your time tweaking something that might not end up in the show. I'm just roughing out the territory. So there's the stuff about the Boutros. There's the stuff about why you don't care about the Boutros because, hey, no one cares about your baby. There's the stuff about, uh, the, the, the move, uh, and the city and the countryside, and there's some other stuff about getting engaged. But it, it 
You know, already I feel like the show is good enough, the preview is good enough, that that doesn't do it justice at all. Some stuff about this, some stuff about that. I'm feeling really excited about it. Even the baby stuff. I was talking to some mates afterwards and they were saying even the baby stuff doesn't feel like this is stuff about a baby. So that's a tiny bit of blowing my own trumpet. Rejected titles for the show included. This trumpet isn't going to blow itself. And which I thought was really funny. And uh, I, someone in, in uh, Team Goldsmith rejected the idea. <laughs> and they used the word naff, which I haven't heard for ages. And honestly, the word, uh, the other word that came up to me recently, I was going to call my show snazzy, which I love, but it's not me, is it? It's not me. That's, the, that's one of the most painful things, is coming up with a brilliant title for a show and then going, I just don't think it's me. The other title I was going to go with was Some Diggity. Come on, that's brilliant. Some diggity. Oh, great. I even wrote a blurb that ended with, but he's somehow not entirely happy about the way you work it, work it. That's still good. I'm putting a pin in that. I may still use it. Thank, uh, thanks. A lot of you have joined the Facebook group. Uh, and I appreciate that. Um, I think I spoke on the last show about misunderstanding why everyone was doing that and then realising it's because I'd asked you to. Um, but we've had like 100 new members in the last uh, week or two, which is uh, enormously gratifying and a great way to contact me in a more personal fashion in a way that I'll, I'll occasionally reply to. Went to all this trouble with the new comedianscomedian.com website to include comment sections. Of course no one uses them. Uh, of course no one visits the actual page that the... The podcast is resident on uh, because you just listen on your smart devices. So, you know, it's it's all important learning stuff. Um, but that's that got a bit administrative. What do I want to talk about? Oh, got to get some photos done. That's not very interesting. I've got to get photos done. But I have promised this day to my partner and the Boutros and uh, and then my dear, dear friend and uh, co-conspirator, uh, said oh can we move this back an hour and already i'm like no it's the old me could have moved it back an hour the new me has got some responsibilities so we're gonna have to move it back a month uh to try and fit it in touring is fun i'm enjoying touring i'm not driving that much more than i would have done anyway and people said i mean i'm three gigs in maybe this is maybe 20 ask me 20 gigs in how much fun touring is but so far the shows have just been delightful i probably do a tough one the start of the Kingston show was tough because the show starts in a very, uh, or is, is designed to start, is supposed to start in quite a punchy, hello, welcome, bang joke. And and because of the nature of the show on Monday, I, I, I was so bouncy. I had a couple of mates in the crowd. I was excited to see, see so many people there. I was backstage going, yeah, and I've just bought some new trainers. I've bought some gold trainers. Who do I think I am? Joel Domit. Christ. Um... And uh, I'm really excited about them. I just remember that I'm going to wear them again today when I leave the house. Mwah. But um, I was bouncing around in the little acts area in outside the Box Comedy Club in my golden trainers, listening to all these people come in, having a right old laugh. I'd been whispering to people through the curtain. Oh, yeah, I'm good because the, the curtain is right next to where the crowd come in. It's going, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to sit down the front. Yeah, I've heard this comedian is really friendly. So I'm going to get right down the front and sort of making people laugh in the queue. It's reverse vickering, if you will. Uh, vickering is when you uh, shake hands with people as they leave the gig. So it's reverse vickering. Deviling. Deviling. There we go. <laughs> Deviling. Or is it, it would need to be, it's not godding, is it? Vickering. It would need to be a priest of the devil. It would need to be, 
I don't know the Cenobiting? Fine. So uh, I'm there Cenobiting as everyone comes in. I put myself in a really good, silly mood. And, uh, and as a result, I went on stage and rather than stick to the written opening of the show, I was like, hey, guys, thanks so much for coming. So listen, it's a bit different today and blah, blah, blah. This isn't the show. I haven't started the show. Oh, God, what I've done is I've started comparing but without doing any jokes. So um, it's just, you know, that classic thing of, uh, of you're taking one energy on stage or you're reading one energy from the room. But the energy you read from the room when you're not on stage is very different. I think I'm just learning this as I'm saying it out loud. You read an energy from the room. It's a, I'm, I'm reading um, in, in prep for a special interview. I'm reading the book, The Naked Jape. You can probably work out what that means. Um, and in that, they talk about the the reflexive, the, the relationship between the audience and the performer and the way they feed into each other. It's in a chapter about African drumming. The drummers follow the dancers. The dancers follow the drummers. No one's in charge. Brilliant. So it's like that is that they, they, they posit in comedy. You're following the audience. The audience is following the comedian. No one's in charge. It's sort of analogous, but not entirely. And so I was, I was in the, I was following the energy of the room from the perspective of people in the room and then I took that on stage with me and it was like, what a great time we're all having, right? Us that are in the room. And they're like, no, the relationship's different now because you're on stage. And I had to go, oh yeah, oh yeah, remember, get your, don't panic, don't freak out, don't worry, don't tell them it's going badly, don't tell them it's a wonky start, get your head down, do the show. And I did and it all came good. And in the second half, I was doing new stuff. I've got a joke about, um, a tiny, a micro joke about how we discovered we were pregnant and... The sound was popping and going and I used the backup mic and then the sound popped again and then I put the mic down and the sound popped again and it just started this lovely giddy thing. And so I ended up miming a joke and it was so much fun. And at the end, I've got a recording of it. I might even put a recording up because it's um, it's just a recording of people laughing. It's ridiculous. But uh, uh, it was so frustrating. I was like, you are so jealous of clowns. I was crap at clowning, but I'm... But I can, I'm not a bad mime. I'm not a bad mime. I did a tiny bit of training. I've got a tiny facility for it. And actually trying to, I quite enjoyed the challenge of miming the, you know what Gorman was saying? <laughs> Gorman. Do you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, from Aliens. Uh, you know what Dave Gorman was saying last week about um, explaining how difficult it was to achieve the thing he was trying to achieve for the show all those years ago ended up being funnier than the actual jokes he was planning to write. So I found the challenge of trying to mime my way through an existing joke that people didn't understand. And I had to really, I had to mime, we were in Amsterdam and she, we found, not she was pregnant, but we found out she was pregnant after. How do you mime time? Brilliant. And that challenge, God, it was fun. Oh my God, they were killing themselves. And I finished it by going, well, thank you. I mean, this has been absolutely brilliant, but none of it's usable unless I contrive a situation where the sound system breaks. So maybe there is room for mime in comedy. I've said too much. I've finally gone too far. That'll do for now because uh, I'm going to enjoy my sweet day off with my family. Um, thank you very much for all your emails, all your donations, and uh, you know where to do everything you need to do. Thanks for the horses. Let's do underscore horse again because it's unique. Hashtag underscore horse. Feel free. Or, no, let's stick with that. Let's stick with that. I was hoping to sort of chart who listened to which one. Um Okay, yeah, let's let's continue that. Let's uh, mystery horse. I was going to say horse X, but that would look like horse X. So don't do that. X horse. Does that look anything rude? Angle bum party. No, we're fine. Hashtag the letter X, then the word horse. All one word. X horse. 
and uh, that'll do for now. Cheers. Speak soon. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.